Hello, Phil Croshaw here from Passions, and in this episode, Dr. Jane Galton joins me to talk about cheetahs. Hello, Phil Crowshaw here and a very warm welcome to this episode of Passions. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Jane Galton from the Cheetah Conservation Fund. I was, I was, I know it's CCF, so I was sort of yeah. worried I'd get that wrong, but I think I've got it right. Uh, Dr. Galton, thanks very much for joining me today. Um, would you like to start off by telling me what your passion is? Well, yes, I sort of thought about that and I thought, well, how does one even define a passion? Because um, we've, my husband is a passionate fisherman and we've talked about the difference between a passion and a hobby. You know, some people say, well, I, I like to, you know, I don't know, sort out, study, photograph, whatever. But I think passion is something for me anyway it's something slightly different um and yeah. i think it's a bit it's a bit more like it's something that consumes you and actually if you're not careful um you make decisions that you don't really think about the consequences of so you just go head head first into things and then you worry about how you're going to deal with it afterwards so it's for me particularly with my passion it's slightly it, it 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 can get a little bit out of control um so in terms of uh what my passion is is animals basically um i think i came out of the womb sort of loving animals and of course in in and i and i've spent most of my life at least 50 60 percent of my life overseas um so it tended it started off with domestic animals and but then as we moved overseas, I was able to sort of, you know, start thinking about wildlife. And um, so, yeah, so that's that's my passion. It hasn't been my career um, until the last 10 years. Um, so my uh, so, yes, yeah, so it's not it hasn't been my career, but I've sort of made it um, my last sort of career, if you like, in a way. Fabulous. Okay, well, we'll come back to that in a minute. So just tell me a little bit about CCF and uh, tell me about what it is you tend to do there and what, what your main line, line of work is. Um, well, I, I'm on the board of trustees of CCF UK and CCF US and um, our organisation, in the we're part of an international affiliate group. Um, the main, the headquarters of CCF or Cheetah Conservation Fund um, is in Namibia, but we have partners work and we work with um, other um, NGOs um, in other parts, in other cheetah range countries in Africa. Um, there's only, uh, we work with, there's only 50 Asiatic cheetahs um, left now, and those are in Iran. So we also have connections um, there as well. 
And um, so our goals in the in the UK are quite limited to raising awareness and raising funds to send to Africa. Because I think the cheetah is the forgotten cat. Everybody thinks of a big cat and they think, oh yes, the, uh, the lion, the tiger, the leopard, you know, and the cheetah's sort of a little bit forgotten. And I don't think anybody realizes there's only 7,000 left in the world. And they are now the most endangered big cat in Africa. So, so we're trying to, you know, develop an awareness around that and, and talking about the main threats to the cheetah, which is their three three or four. So um, human wildlife conflict, the illegal wildlife trade, um, where cheetahs are taken, snatched from their mothers, trafficked up through um, Somalia, Somaliland, and then into the Middle East where they're sold as pets, and uh, habitat destruction, and, and also a re reduction in prey species, so they don't have enough food for themselves so so the dr marker has developed this amazing holistic um uh, set of programs which um which respond to these threats all right it's, it's amazing so um it's interesting actually because i'm just thinking here that your passion you said at the start that your passion is animals so then the next layer down isn't there in a way is the passion is animals and then the next layer down is the your passion is cheetahs why cheetahs in particular um i think i i i've always loved cats always big cats um and i was lucky enough to i met laurie and then i i actually went out to um uh to visit her in, in namibia which is where the headquarters are and i don't know there's something there's something quite extraordinary about them not just the fact that they're the fastest animal, but they are just so beautiful. And I think also because they're so endangered, your heart sort of goes out to them. And um, they're just the most beautiful, iconic, elegant, and unfortunately for them in some ways, quite gentle big cat. So they're the only big cat that purrs. Um, and that means that unfortunately they're relatively easy to domesticate but i think it's just all those aspects of them they look at if you look at them they look straight at you and they just have so much emotion in their eyes i mean they're just the most beautiful beautiful creatures um and so yeah i just completely fell in love with them it's wonderful i can i can see that I can... sort of it was also feeling that you know they need to be saved and and you know wanting to work towards that to make sure that they don't disappear because they are really really racing towards extinction unfortunately so we just we have to you know work to keep them keep them going absolutely and you're recording this in the um, in the midst of the global pandemic um what sort of impact has the pandemic had on the charity and the animals themselves um the um the in terms of the charity um a third of our funding comes from people visiting um the headquarters in namibia where you can actually go and see conservation in action and um 
so obviously they had to close down so there's no tourists there's no um paying guests no interns who you know volunteers who go there to maybe do a couple of weeks and you know they have to pay for that because that helps fund the work um and um so that's really had a huge impact on our income and that just means that we can't fund some of the programs as much as we'd want to. We also actually, um, in Namibia, because Laurie's got such an amazing relationship with the government, we are sometimes given other animals to, to steward them. And so we've got African wild dogs um, on the site as well. And we're doing some African wild dog programs, but it's quite difficult to get funding for those. So that's had an impact and um, we're, we're monitoring it very carefully at the moment, but it's the same for all wildlife because there's no tourism. Um, it means that rangers can't be supported anymore. There's a, you know, there's a limit to how much these organizations can implement their programs. So it means that the poachers have, um, you know, which is now part of organized crime, um, the poachers now have, you know, much more freedom to um, to take to take wildlife, and in our case, you know, in, in the case of elephants and rhinos, it's product. In our case, it's the live animals, um, which people again, it's 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 a it's a a business that people don't really know very much about. So we haven't seen an increase, a dramatic increase in that yet, but but a slight increase so we're, we're monitoring that at the moment um we just put a report into defra about about that so yeah we're monitoring it and um i can't give you the definitive answer about the increase in poaching or not but we are monitoring it yeah absolutely i mean i find it quite staggering in a sense that when i think of leopards as pets or on a, on a chain i think of some tv movie you know, from from ancient Egypt. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, the fact that it's still happening and still going on, I find quite remarkable and quite shocking, to be honest. Well, I think it's, um, there's always, you're right, there's always been that relationship between, you know, Egyptian princes and Middle Eastern princes having a wild animal. And cheetahs in those days were used for hunting, um and you know and i suppose it was a little there were many more around in those days so i don't think people you know thought about it a lot but as the numbers are decreasing and uh you know the um the we call it the social media click sort of you know impetus um people in the middle east if they have a pet cheetah they get much much higher social media clicks on their facebook pages so or instagram pages so social media is actually fueling the trade um and um that's you know, remarkable yeah I mean, you know I've, I've done quite a few of these interviews so far and that's probably the almost like the open mouth point I know, I, know, <laughs> I, I always pick up all sorts of different insights from people and and from stories people tell doing this and i've been doing this quite a long time but i have to say that the very idea that people are doing are partly doing it just because they want to get more clicks on instagram is horrific yeah 
in a it's way. Also, it's also a way of wealthy Arabs showing off their in, even more of their wealth. So you'll see all these photographs with them, mm. with a cheetah has a diamond collar around its neck, sitting in their Lamborghini, um, with a you know a, a chain. Um, the unfortunate thing is because most of them don't know how to look after them. Uh, many of them die. They're kept in cages in a basement, and many of them don't make it past two years. So it's it's very sad. And because cheetahs, it's very difficult to breed cheetahs in captivity. Um, they you then have to go back into the wild, and uh, it's beginning to completely decimate very small, fragile populations of cheetahs in the Horn of Africa. So we are working, um, you know, to reduce the supply. Um, through, a, through a grant we've got with DEFRA and also to reduce the demand. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a serious, serious problem. Yeah, I, yeah, I just find that absolutely unbelievable, to be honest. Because uh, yeah. obviously, the, in media terms, I would say mm -hmm. that the, the elephants and the ivory trade tends to, as I perceive it, as an outsider looking in, seems that that tends to get most of the publicity. Yes, that's very true. <clears throat> and, and it comes back to what I was saying is that the cheetah is sort of the, not just a forgotten big cat, but people don't really, you know, if you look at, I don't know, other charities that, that focus on many more than just one animal, um, you know, you think of the animals they put up there, the rhino, the tiger, the snow leopard, but the cheetah is sort of forgotten. And it's very interesting because because the, the when I when I took over... Um, running the charity, which I sort of fell into, quite frankly. Um, uh, all the people who we've now got 70 volunteers <clears throat> and a small sort of cadre of staff, but um, everybody, the one thing that holds everybody together is this passion for the cheetah. And um, yeah, they're just completely passionate about it. So but as you say, you know, not many people are aware of this live trade, but it is now the fourth largest um, illegal trade in the world. It's worth about 60 billion a year. So if you think of snakes, reptiles, birds, um, you know, cheetah, chimpanzees, monkeys, whatever, it's a massive, massive illegal criminal trade. Well, hopefully, as a result of this interview, um, maybe a few more people will be more aware and more conscious of the situation. I certainly am. So uh, that's so. one more person. And if anybody wants to come and volunteer with us, they can always get in touch with me. Absolutely. And I'll ask you, actually, towards the end as to how people can get in touch and, and, and websites and such like. OK, I want to pick up now on something you said about um, you'd only kind of ended up in this arena as a career only 10 years ago now t tell me about that tell me what happened before then and were you always wanting to get into making a career out of your love of animals H how did all that happen um well I, I i you know how did my love of animals develop i don't think it developed i think i, I just think I, <laughs> I came out of the womb and that was it you know from the first time in my life i can just remember being um, completely in love with animals. So um, I did a zoology degree and, um, but you know, it was a while ago and conservation was, a, was still a burgeoning sort of sector. And um, we didn't get much career guidance at university. I was 
we're absolutely fascinated with animal behavior um, and, um, you know, absorbed all these books. Um, but I didn't really know how to how to get into it. Nobody sort of, you know, gave me any advice. So um, so I didn't really know how to progress that. But my other my other wasn't a passion. My other goal was to save the world of cancer. So uh, just a little goal. So yes. I thought, right, yeah. you know, so how can I do that anyway? So I um, I ended up doing a PhD in um, immunology, and um, I ended up doing. So I went to the state center about ten years, and I worked at NYU, NYU Medical Center and at UCLA. Um, and I was doing immunotherapy research. So now I think it's common now people talk about monoclonal antibodies and everything. But in those days, this is like 25, 30 years ago. This was a very, 25 years ago, this was still a very new field. And we were trying to make immunotherapy to treat cancer patients. Um, so I ended up doing that for quite a while. And then I, um, and then I thought, right, I'll try something else. So I went into the pharmaceutical sector, and decided to do an MBA, and went into marketing, business development. I won't bore you with what I did, but then I met my husband, um, and he uh, he worked for the British government and was posted overseas. And it was while so we then moved to um, Oman, Nigeria, and Mexico. And it was while I was in Nigeria that I really realized that the, the corporate profit sector is really not my bag. So I started doing international development work projects for the UK aid agency, for population services, international things like that around maternal health, HIV. Um, and I then realized that that's, you know, that was what interested me. So I then, I then sort of like, you know, it's like having a portfolio career, you know. Yes, yes. Every country I went to, I had to reinvent myself, you know. <clears throat> so I then ended up sort of working for the last sort of, I would say, 15 years of my career working in international development. And that was a variety of things in maternal health. Um, uh, in Mexico, I worked for a human rights NGO, working with, you know, UNHCR and for this um, this NGO in, in Mexico City, and um, and then when we came back to the UK about ten years ago, um, I worked in uh, carried on working in international development, and I was fortunate enough to be introduced to this guy who had an NGO in um, Kenya working with elephants called Space for Giants. And um, so I said to Max, uh, Dr. Max Graham, I said, you know, if you want to, if you want to really sort of start raising serious money, you need to have a charity in the UK. So I helped set up the charity here. I was a founding trustee of Space for Giants. And, um, and then uh, I was on the board for five years, I learned a huge amount of, of, uh, of stuff, of, of, you know, a huge amount about conservation um and um yeah so th thanks to max i was able to learn a lot about that um and it was while i was on that board that i was introduced to laurie and that's when i was i literally was just blown away by the work she was doing so she asked me to join the board and and 
I don't know if that answers everything, whether I've gone a bit off piece. No, but, no not um, at all. It, it's very much, it's, it's very relevant because part of this whole passions journey is part of it is actually maybe to help other people to realize that actually, you know, you can get to, shall we say midlife for the sake of the discussion. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that because you're doing what you're doing, that you can't make a move. You can't make a change. Did, did you find Absolutely. that, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, obviously, but did you find that um, arguably when you were in what you might call business development and commercial, you weren't particularly fulfilled after that, then when you started to get into all the sectors you've just described, were you significantly more fulfilled? And were you aware of that, that you were more fulfilled? Yes, absolutely. Um, mm. I, I, I just felt that I needed, you know, I've always felt that. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't have gone off and done been a scientist. I just felt that I needed, you know, that I, I needed to have a meaningful career that wasn't just about profit and the bottom line. I mean, there were bits of it I enjoyed. It was very challenging. And, you know, I worked for KPMG and Oman as a management consultant, and that was fascinating. But it was all about, you know, you know the, 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 the chargeable hours and very much focused on that. So when I started working in international development, I just, yeah, it just sort of, it just made sense to me. You know, it just resonated. This is what I wanted to, to, to do. And it was while I was doing that that I realized, and I think this is a, this is a really um, important sort of pivotal moment, moment for me, but I think for, for other people, and I can describe that a bit later, but I, I realized that, okay, I didn't know anything about conservation, but I had really good skills that were transferable. So, so when I met Max, you know, I had a lot of experience in business development, which of course you can use in any sector really. And so he, he sort of, he trained me or taught me about conservation and, and the programs and, you know, what was going on. And I read a lot and then he, I was then able to help him do the fundraising through grant writing and, you know, hosting events and things like that. And uh, so I think I think it's important for people to say, OK, well, I know nothing about whatever it is sector you want to go into, but to look at the skills that you have and think, well, which ones are transferable, you know? And um, so that's that's what I did. And I I worked during that whole time. So I had a flat out, you know, 14, 15 hours a day job. And then I would have to come home and start working on the conservation stuff you know so it was uh it was quite a busy time <laughs> um, so, so i guess the pa i guess the passion that you had for that gave you extra energy and stamina to do that even though you were probably a bit weary from the day exactly. and we, i often call it side hustles actually <laughs> um you know where you, yeah well you know and that could be something as simple as uh, having entrepreneurial tendencies as i call it where yeah. you've got a day job and you've got the wages fairy coming every month which is great but then these days with the internet i don't think people fully realize the opportunities to have side hustles has never been better Absolutely. Yeah, you can just sort of try and try and build something up, you know, while you've still got the income. And and if you know, if I had done it early enough, then I would definitely have turned it into a career. But I didn't. You know, I was living overseas for sixteen years with Clive, and um, you know, in countries where 
I mean, that wasn't really on on the cards. I mean, Nigeria, there's no wildlife. Well, there's limited wildlife in the um, in the in, in the east. But um, maybe if I'd lived in Kenya, for example, I might have then used my skills to immediately transfer into to the wildlife sector, conservation sector. But um, I think if you do it, maybe you do it early enough, then you can transfer it. And it's interesting because the volunteers, as well as the, the part-time people who've, who've joined CCF in the UK, they are using their skills, which I don't have. And I'm the, the, the deal is they volunteer, the deal is I teach them about conservation. That's a quid pro quo. So it's a win-win. And in fact, one of our, the PR, the woman who came in and helped us with PR, she's just, um, she's just signed up to do a wildlife conservation management master's um, at Bristol Zoo. And she's been able to be accepted because she's had this, this background with, with CCF. So. Brilliant. I'm really glad actually you mentioned transferable skills because it's so relevant actually nowadays. And I have conversations quite often with clients and people who are thinking about career changes and everything else. And the one thing, and especially in current times where employment is is looking uh, somewhat um, difficult, let's put it that way. Um, and I'm amazed at how many people don't actually kind of don't really get the fact that they have all these skills, communication, problem solving, decision making, long, long list creativity. But they think that they've been doing this job for 10 years and they absolutely freak out at the idea of going doing something else because, well, I don't know anything else other than laundry, whatever it is that they're doing. And it's something that I, I often talk to people about. So I think it's great to hear you talk about the importance of transfer, transferable skills and also yeah, being yeah. self-aware, being self-aware that you've got those transferable skills. Yes, I mean, maybe. Uh, yes, I absolutely. And I, it's very interesting you bring that up because I've helped a number of people with their CVs and I look at them and I go, well, I know that you can do this. And they go, yeah, but... But it's like, well, I, I, that's my job. And I, I remember helping one friend and I said, I said, but you're so, you, you have such amazing organizational skills. We said, well, that's just normal. I said, no, it's not. It's not. People don't have that ability. So you need to put that in your CV and all those things that people just take, the fact that they can do it well, they sort of take it for granted and don't think that it's something that, you know, an employer or, you know, or maybe if you want to really transfer your career, you go and volunteer in a charity to start with and learn learn that way. But they people just don't think that what they've got is is that amazing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think I take it I take it a little bit for granted because I love variety and get bored easy. My whole career uh, even my corporate career was shifting from, you know, from travel to IT to training and development to mobile phones, just because I enjoyed learning new things and getting new experiences. Exactly. Like, just like you said about portfolio working, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, I used to call it my tapestry career. Yeah, I like that. I think that's even better than portfolio career, actually. <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. That nice. yeah. Right. Okay. Well, um, 
I could talk to you forever, as always, as I always can with people, because just everybody's got such interesting stories. Um, just to conclude, then, do you want to just give us a bit of information as to how people can find out more about uh, CCF and and actually how they can contact you and the team to maybe volunteer if this is if this interview has resonated with them? Yes, um, you can visit us on our website, which is www.cheetah.org.uk. And um, you can contact me directly at jane at cheetah.org.uk. Fantastic. I'm going to ask you one more question because I've just remembered you said something earlier. Um, <laughs> you talked about, um, I'm trying to remember how, exactly how you put it, but it, it, yes, that was right, about how passion can, as I read it, you were almost suggesting that passion can get you in a little bit of hot water. <laughs> and, I, and I'm just wondering to what degree that was part of the travelling into these remote areas of Africa. And, yeah, and actually so going, oh yes, here I am in the, oh, in, no. the, in the African bush with my passion. And in the meantime, there's about 13 wild animals you tearing up behind idea. you. Oh, I mean, that's gone from, you know, um, borrowing, uh, you know, monkeys that have been taken from the wild and kids are running around with them. So I sort of borrow them and disappear off, which is not the safest thing to do in the middle of the bush. Yeah. And then I then I let them free, um, but the funniest one, which is not to do with wildlife, but it was when um, we were in Senegal <clears throat> for meetings, and I saw a blind. Well, I didn't know it was blind at the time. A blind kitten in the gutter of a Senegalese market when we were living in Nigeria, and cut a long story short, I tr I decided that I was going to take it back to Nigeria, so I sequestered it in my bra and got it on the plane. Oh my God. <laughs> so I got it on the plane. Kids, don't try this at home. Completely <laughs> illegally. And uh, got it back to Nigeria. And uh, we named him Tintin, of course, French West Africa. And somebody adopted him and he lived for a very happy 18 years in Manchester. Wonderful. I thought you were going to say, and here he is. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one I just got. Here's another one I just got. Yeah. Oh, crikey. That is wonderful. So I, there are many, many stories, <laughs> I can tell you. Yeah. Well, what we'll do, we'll do another interview and we'll just talk about the stories of the of the wild. And um, <laughs> fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Right. Uh, Dr. Galton, thanks ever so much for joining me. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Some really good stuff there. Some great insights and, and inspiration. And I've certainly learned a lot from it. And uh, all the very, very best with it. And as I say, hopefully I can help you out with Spencer with a few things over the, over the oh, coming months and years. Oh, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, take care. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.